This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Good morning, everybody, and uh, a very warm welcome uh, to this uh, uh, breakfast uh, time uh, meeting. Having said that, there's no breakfast, so I hope you uh, took it, had it, before you left home uh, and came this morning. But there is coffee. Um, and uh, let me, uh, on behalf of Friends of Europe, say how glad I am to see such a large audience at this early hour. Uh, but uh, I think the topic uh, deserves uh, your presence uh, and will certainly make the next hour as worthwhile for you uh, as we can. Uh, I'm Jamie Shea, but I know most of you and many of you know me, uh, former, formerly of NATO and now very happily senior fellow uh, Friends of Europe, working on the Peace, uh, Security, Defence programmes. Let me also welcome you to this Town Hall Europe, uh, where uh, you see uh, Friends of Europe have now established a permanent sort of interactive uh, meeting place. Some of you may have come uh, just a couple of weeks back to the two inaugural evenings uh, where you saw multi-screens and connections uh, all around the world. Uh, and uh, this is the first time, I'm very pleased to say, that the Peace uh, Security Defence Programme have been able to use this uh, facility where in the future, I mean, we have our three speakers physically with us today, which is always, of course, a great uh, solution. But in future, we can do many things on screens uh, by a video conference uh, as, as well. Um, so uh, that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, let me say that today we are having the kickoff meeting of a new series that we've uh, designed called Lessons from History. Uh, and this is not so much ancient history uh, that we'll be looking at, uh, but where there are some recent experiences that can illuminate current challenges and from which we can draw lessons uh, as to how we can uh, improve defence security and peace uh, as we go uh, forward. Uh, and, and today, uh, what we thought would be an excellent kickoff session for Lessons from History uh, would be to look at recent uh, UN peacekeeping experiences on the African continent, uh, focusing uh, notably on Rwanda and uh, Liberia. Uh, why this? Well, because as I'm sure all of you know very well, uh, uh, half of uh, all of the peacekeeping operations in the world today are on the African continent. The great bulk uh, of the UN peacekeepers uh, are uh, uh, on the African continent in those uh, missions. There are some very major ones, of course, going on, which have been going on for a long time uh, in, in Congo, in South Sudan, and, and so on. Interesting experiences in hybrid operations with UN and African Union working together in, in Somalia. And uh, those of you who follow the Friends of Europe security agenda know that we've had, a, for the last few years now, a particular focus on Africa because this is a continent which obviously, uh, in all of its dimensions, is increasingly tied up with EU security in the future as, as, as well. Uh, and so not only do we want to look at UN peacekeeping, but also ask the question, is there more that uh, uh, EU countries, NATO countries, NATO to EU's organisations can be doing uh, to assist uh, UN peacekeeping with logistics, uh, with uh, personnel, with police, with uh, experience, uh, training, uh, finance, uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, Africans are providing the bulk of the UN peacekeepers. Italy, with about 1,600, seems to be the largest uh, EU uh, national contributor. So is there more, uh, notwithstanding NATO in Afghanistan and the EU CF, uh, SP, CSDP operations, is there more that we should be uh, doing to make the UN uh, more successful? 
And again, uh, or even more successful. Uh, and again, uh, looking particularly at UN peacekeeping, uh, we all are aware of the proposals of Secretary General Guterres for action for peacekeeping coming on in the wake of the Brahmini report of the Boutros Ghali's agenda for peace many years ago. Uh, what lessons do we take from African peacekeeping that could feed into this more general uh, uh, review and reform of peacekeeping coming out of New York. So lots of big topics to talk about, but first of all, we want to hear from the experts. Oh, and by the way, uh, just before I introduce the experts, uh, my colleagues at Friends of Europe uh, uh, have very kindly produced this fact sheet, uh, which... Um, gives you facts that many of you are familiar with already, but it's a useful recall of some of the uh, recent UN peacekeeping operations uh, and the change in participation uh, and focus. Uh, and uh, for those who are interested in women in peacekeeping and UN Security Council Resolution 1325, uh, a useful uh, look at just how represented women are today uh, in those uh, operations. So, uh, friends of Europe, colleagues, thank you very much for producing this excellent fact sheet. But we have three uh, uh, absolutely ideal experts uh, uh, today. First, Alice Musabende, who is the Gates Scholar. Uh, is that Bob Gates or Bill Gates? Presumably Bill, yeah. I, I think Bob would, would have had the interest, but not the money, right? But, but Bill certainly has both the interest and the money. So the Gates uh, Scholar uh, in Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. Uh, so, uh, Alice, thanks for making the journey uh, over uh, uh, today to be with us. You're also notably a survivor uh, of the Rwandan genocide in 1994, uh, and so we look very much forward to your personal experiences as well as the lessons that you've drawn from that in terms of your work today. Uh, you're going to be followed by another very, very well-known, very notable uh, expert on Rwanda, uh, Linda Melvin. Uh, Linda is an investigative journalist. Many of you who follow this would have uh, read her work in The Guardian and other newspapers over the years. She's a former consultant to the Military One trial at the International Criminal criminal tribunal for Rwanda and she was just telling me that she now has uh, an enormous Rwanda archive uh, which is so big that she's had to build a barn uh, or uh, use a barn uh, next to her house on Exmoor uh, to house uh, all of those uh, materials and then uh, uh, in third uh, place but by no means least uh, Rory Keane. Rory of course doesn't really need an introduction here uh, because all of you know him as the uh, head of the UN Liaison Office for Peace uh, and Security in Brussels. When I was at NATO, Rory, you're always a very good friend and colleague in coming out and briefing us uh, on the UN uh, issues and uh, pursuing uh, a stronger dialogue between NATO and the UN. And I'd like to, on record, thank you for all of that. Uh, it's good to know you're still here. And Rory will uh, sort of give a more sort of New York strategic perspective on the... Uh, regional issues that uh, Alice uh, and Linda will pick up. So um, I'm going to ask each of you in turn to give us your views over five or six minutes. I'll ask you a quick warm-up the audience follow-up questions, but I promise to be brief. And the idea is we devote the maximum amount of our time today uh, to questions and comments uh, from the floor. So again, really great to see so many of you today. Great to have three good speakers. And Alice, will you kick us off, please? Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I, I want to start by addressing what you just mentioned in terms of my very own experience. Uh, they will not be as um, uh, 
smart, I suppose, because I was uh, quite young. I was just about to turn 14 in the middle of the Rwandan genocide against the Tutsis. And um, it's in, during the genocide that I lost my parents, my grandparents, and uh, my, all my siblings. Um, at the end of the genocide, um, my aunt, who had survived, um, took me in and she raised me. And it's possibly because of women like her, I think, that I am here today, but also that I think that the country is what it is today. I don't think the country would have been able to make it without the women who literally lifted it up um, and made it what it is. Now, in terms of what brought me to these types of research and this types of thing, I mean, it's that kind of experience. I wanted to figure out the big question, why is it that the white people never showed up? Um, or they did show up, but not the right way and not at the right time. And it, 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 you know, it's that kind of question that haunted me for a very long time and took me to studies in journalism first, and then later on in um, international studies and politics. My very own research at the moment looks at questions of intervention, which I think are central to what we are talking about here today. The question of intervening in a country, whether it's in conflict or coming out of conflict, is very, very thorny, especially given that now we have a seen in African conflicts, I know for, for sure that it's not just European countries now, and it's not just the UN now that is talking about intervening, whether it's peacekeeping, peacebuilding, or any other form of intervention. We're talking now about the rise of China, which at the moment is the country that is the highest contributor in peacekeeping at the moment. And it wasn't there in the 1990s with the cases that we're speaking about. So the scene has dramatically changed. Uh, the interveners have dramatically changed. And the kinds of conflicts that we are dealing with have dramatically changed. In the 1990s, as we know, we were still dealing with conflicts that are linked to ethnic uh, issues or certain civil wars. But now we are dealing with different forms of war, terrorism. Uh, counterinsurgencies and counterinsurgencies and uh, different other forms of very, very complex um, wars. And at the moment, from what I'm looking at and what I'm studying, we are having a bit of trouble defining where peace building starts and where it ends and where conflict starts and where it, where it ends because these, these two things have no clear sort of um, boundary where you can say, well, we know for sure this has ended, now we can start talking about peace building. And in the agenda for peace, and this is the last point I wanted to make, in the agenda for peace, peace building was imagined at the time as a way to prevent countries from relapsing into conflict. It was really, that was the key tenant of the agenda for peace. Right now, as we have seen, for example, in Burundi in 2015 and certain other places, it's very, very hard to know when you can determine for sure that there is a possibility of a relapse and what a relapse in conflict actually looks like and what kind of determinants that we should be finding and thinking about. And also we know that now most African countries, and I think rightly so, are much less uh, open to external actors' intervention. So that's what we are talking about. I think today that's what we are observing and that's what's making these whole questions very, very important to discuss today. Thank you. Uh, Alice, thank you very much indeed. So pass the microphone then please to uh, Linda for her comments. Thank you. Um, I'm an investigative journalist and I used to work for the Sunday Times in London 
um, and decided after Murdoch bought the paper that I'd go freelance. I've written um, seven books of nonfiction, and my third book was about the United Nations. It was a history of the United Nations. So I came to the uh, genocide of the Tutsi through peacekeeping. I'd written a history of peacekeeping. Um, um, Rwanda is perceived, perhaps rightly, as the, the greatest peacekeeping failure in UN history. I think Alice would agree uh, with that. Um, and there were many reasons for it. Um, I was in New York. My book on the UN was being filmed for a Channel 4 series called UN Blues. So when the genocide of the Tutsi started and happened, I was in New York. And I was fortunate enough to um, be able to spend time with the president of the UN Security Council, who was Colin Keating, the ambassador for New Zealand. Um, and he told me and helped me write an account of what was said in the secret and informal meetings of the council to discuss Rwanda, April to July 1994. My job is about accountability, and I believed that every member of the council at that time should bear responsibility for the decisions uh, that were taken. And Colin Keating, Ambassador Keating, said to me that every state on the council at that time should have held an inquiry uh, into the decision-making. My own country, um, we're not Norway, we're not New Zealand, we're a permanent member of the council. And it was with some shock that I learned that um, it was the UK that first called for the withdrawal of the peacekeepers from Rwanda. Um, I wrote um, a piece, a chapter on Unamir for the Oxford Handbook of uh, Peacekeeping. And it was one of the most difficult things I, I did, and that was to draw conclusions about Unamir for the future, for the lessons learned. So the sp specific circumstances when it comes to Rwanda... Uh, were these, and these were my conclusions. And I think that they're, they're pretty shocking, and I wondered if now anything had changed. When Unamir was in the field in 1994, there were 71, 5,043 peacekeepers in 17 different places around the globe. And I saw this in New York. There were 300 officials coping with logistics for them, there were no genuine peacekeeping headquarters. There were too few planning staff. There was no timely intelligence, and this I knew uh, directly that no tragedy was ever warned to, to, to less uh, benefit. In New York, there was no adequate command and control operation, and I think that that is still true uh, today. Um, Institutional weakness, no infrastructure for emergency operation, and no contingency planning. So um, Unamir was, in many ways, a catastrophe. 
but three times Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire was ordered to withdraw from Rwanda completely, and he refused. And although I wrote about the worst that humankind has to offer, there were peacekeepers in Rwanda who tried to do what they could. It was, uh, as one of them said to me, a drop of humanity in an ocean of blood. And what surprises me today is that very few of those peacekeepers have ever really spoken about what their experiences were. Um, I think that all of them should have been um, debriefed, should have been interviewed. There should be an oral history about what uh, they actually experienced. The International Committee of the Red Cross stayed. I spent a week uh, shortly afterwards with its chief delegate, Philippe Gaillard, and he described to me how the peacekeepers of Rwandan were abandoned by their organization, which made it so much worse for them. So I'll stop now, um, and, and there'll be questions afterwards on Unimir, I'm sure. Uh, Linda, Linda, thanks very much. So uh, a final introductory comment from Rory, please. Thank you, Jamie, um, and it's a great honor for me to be here in this panel with uh, Jamie, uh, Alice, and Linda, and um, congratulations also on your venue. I think it's, it's excellent and uh, very useful to have something like this in, in Europe, in the, in the headquarters of, of the European Union. Um, let me take uh, five minutes. Uh, firstly, uh, as the theme of this morning is focused on lessons from history, let me share with you some lessons from the United Nations mission in Liberia. Uh, which closed last March, the 30th of March, 2018, after 15 years. Um, and let me pivot from there or in the final two minutes to give you a more strategic view of where we're going with peacekeeping, responding to some of the issues that have already been mentioned, uh, including uh, Rwanda and, and other issues as well in the, in the 1990s. What can we learn from Liberia? We just... To take you down memory lane very briefly, uh, the, Liberia witnessed two civil wars, uh, consecutive civil wars that went through the period 1989 to 2003. Uh, and then uh, between 2003 to, to 2018, we had a UN peacekeeping operation. So we had a 14-year civil war followed by a 15-year peacekeeping operation. And that itself tells us something. It tells us that we need to invest in peace. So we sometimes, in the corridors of Brussels or out at NATO, we talk about operations with mandates for six months or maybe even 18 months. What we need to think about when we're investing in peace is generational change. Uh, and Liberia and UNMIL is, was and is considered a successful operation, but it took 15 years I think we need to think about the time horizons of our planning. That's the first point. The second point is that we need to invest in transitions. So the moment we as the United Nations or the European Union or NATO enter a country to support a country, we need to be thinking about what's our strategy for leaving. Not so much that we want to leave the next day. As I said, we need to stay there long term. But we also need to think that when we do leave, we need to leave the country in a better place. And uh, as Alice said, we need to have a proper transition to peace building and consolidation of the process. 
And in that regard, uh, Liberia is interesting because the Peacebuilding Commission, uh, the UN Peacebuilding Commission also played an important role uh, and through peacebuilding peace funding uh, and also through political weight from the UN Peacebuilding Commission. The Peacebuilding Commission put emphasis in terms of transition on two aspects that are, were critical, are critical in Liberia, but are critical for many post-conflict countries. One is security sector capacity building, how to ensure that the, the security sector in the country is in a position to take over. And I'm not just talking about capabilities. In fact, I wouldn't say capability is the main issue, actually. You may be surprised to hear. Accountability. Accountability, accountability. Security sectors need to be accountable to parliaments and need to be ultimately accountable to the people. And, of course, capabilities are part of that. Focus on capabilities without accountability is a very dangerous recipe indeed. The other aspect which we probably as an international community don't focus enough on because it's also an endogenous process is how to support national reconciliation. Again, this is a generational process, but what can the international community do to support national reconciliation, to create an enabling environment for national reconciliation, to support pro-domestic endogenous processes towards national reconciliation. This conversation came too late in Liberia, uh, but it's, it's a conversation that, that's taking place right now, and the Peace Building Commission certainly supported that. Another lesson learned from Liberia is the Security Council. I'm being very candid with you. Uh, right now, we see significant divisions in the UN Security Council uh, that makes uh, it a challenge uh, to move forward on certain files. In the case of Liberia, the Security Council played an important role in being cohesive, in staying the course, and in speaking with one voice, the Security Council as a champion. So that's what we need. We need to appeal to the Security Council also uh, to play its role and to really uh, take responsibility. Uh, another interesting lesson from Liberia is the link between a UN operation and a regional uh, a regional structure, uh, in the case of West Africa, ECOWAS. So UNMIL, the United Nations mission, actually came in to take over from, uh, rehatting from ECOWAS uh, mission, which was called ECOMOG. And I think that's something we probably don't think about enough, how to empower and support regional structures, be it ECOWAS, SADAC, uh, East Africa community, um, and so on, to ensure that they can also play an important role and there can be a bridging or a, or a rehatching um, and, and that, type of a, that type of a modality. Um, in terms of a few other uh, points in terms of what we, have lessened, what we have learned, the role of women was critical and is critical in, most, in all conflict, uh, post-conflict situations, but proved prove to be a very important positive factor in Liberia. Um, of course, uh, Lema Bowie uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, um, and for that grassroots women's movement that helped to bring peace to Liberia. But also the peacekeepers. Um, what was very interesting as li in Liberia is that India sent the first all-female uh, formed police unit to Liberia. So this was a country uh, that, uh, where uh, rape and gender violence had been a tool of the conflict, uh, where m many women had been victims of the conflict, where over, in total over a quarter of a million people lost their lives. And, um, and suddenly 
an all-female peacekeeping unit from India arrives in the country to protect the people. Very symbolic, um, showing women in, in an empowered fashion. And I think that is also something we should think about in terms of, in terms of lessons uh, learned. Um, maybe two final points in, in terms of lessons learned. Um, one, I would say... Uh, which is uh, very important, is affordability. We, as the international community, need to plan correctly in terms of how we engage and support uh, national processes, but we need to ensure that what we are planning is a fiscal reality for that country in the long term. So we need to, to use uh, more of an economic term, we need to think about the long term or medium term fiscal space that a country would have to support the security sector, for example. Uh, and we need to support a country to create a system that can work within that fiscal space, because um, otherwise we will have major sustainability challenges. My final point is on justice. What we've learned in Liberia, but in many other contexts as well, is that access to justice is critical. Um, and we sometimes don't focus enough on access to justice because we get so focused on defense sector reform and, and, and other aspects. But we also need to think about we cannot work in islands. Uh, for example, there was a lot of work done on sexual gender-based violence uh, and creating a special, specialized court in Monrovia to deal with uh, sexual and gender-based violence, which was rather a rather well-developed and well-funded initiative. But in the absence of an overall working justice system in the country, uh, a specialized court in the absence of an overall justice system will find it very difficult to be effective. So we need to think about the broader dimension. In one minute, if I may, um, what we have learned from Liberia, what we have learned from other contexts, Rwanda and so on and so forth, is that to be, to be very... Um, um, I don't mean to be, to be overly generic, but, but basically the most important point is that UN peacekeeping is our UN peacekeeping. It's not the UN peacekeeping operations. It, is, it can only be effective if the entire world in, invests in it, if the 193 countries invest in it. Um, and that's why the Secretary General has now established uh, uh, what's called Action for Peacekeeping, uh, which is effectively an agenda, which he announced uh, last year, which, if you like, is a contract between the United Nations and the member states to say, this is our peacekeeping, and we need to make it effective. Uh, we succeed together or we fail together. Uh, and there are a couple of different aspects to Action for Peacekeeping that build on, I would say, the Agenda for Peace and the Brahimi Report. I would say it focuses on three three core pillars. Uh, one is people. How do we ensure that peacekeeping operations protect civilians? And in order to protect civilians, we need to start thinking about what capabilities do we need, what can uh, European countries provide in terms of capabilities, so what, what do we need in order to protect civilians? That's the first, uh, first aspect. Um, the second really is political. Peacekeeping, peace operations, CSTP operations, NATO operations are instruments. They're instruments that can support a political process, but they cannot replace a political process. So we need to also think about what is the political plan? 
what is the political horizon, and what role then does a peace operation play in order to drive that political process forward, rather than thinking about it the other way around, that maybe we'll have a political process because we have a peace operation on the ground. And the third aspect, which is very, and final aspect, uh, which is very uh, relevant to this town, it's partnerships. The Secretary General Guterres is very adamant that for, for peace operations to work uh, in today's world, we need to really exercise Chapter 8 of the UN Charter, which relates to partnerships. So we need to work closely uh, with the EU uh, and with other actors, and we have to develop our partnership. Um, and what we really need is, of course, good complementarity between operations, on one hand, CSTP operations, uh, UN operations, and so on. We also need skill and know-how. Jamie, in the past, has been very helpful to the United Nations in sharing knowledge about counter-IED, because IED is a big threat that peacekeepers face in places like Mali. Um, so learning from specialized actors like NATO on counter-IED and so on is, is also uh, hugely important. And thirdly is for European countries to invest in peace operations through troops, capabilities, and political support. And I would also stress um, the political support. Thank you very much. Uh, Rory, thanks, and uh, also uh, Alice and Linda, thanks very much. Right, we come to question time, and I'll tell you what we're going to do, because obviously the clock is ticking. I'm going to ask a, a quick question, uh, my own question to each of the panellists, but rather than ask, ask them to answer my question immediately, I'm going to ask you simply to note them down, and then we'll take two questions at the same time from the audience. After that first round directly to the audience for further rounds until we uh, reach the end of the time. So, um, Alice, my question to you is that you said, interestingly, that you feel that the African countries are less open to external actors intervening. Does that mean that uh, you see the solution maybe in giving the peacekeeping role primarily to the African Union? And is it able at the moment to play that role, uh, notwithstanding obviously some successes in Somalia, but is it able to play a larger role? Linda, um, looking onwards from 1994 and the, uh, the genocide, uh, do you feel that the UN has been able to sort of atone, if that's the right word, because it's not so much the failure of the UN, it's the failure of all of us who make up the UN. We can't blame the UN for what happened, as you rightly said. Um, but uh, has the UN been able to atone by uh, helping with the reconciliation and political development of the country, or has that been largely done by... Uh, uh, Kagami and the Rwandans themselves. Um, and Rory, uh, what, when you are uh, here in town with the EU and you mentioned the need for European countries to back the efforts, what kind of things in particular uh, from the EU perspective are you uh, looking for? Do you feel that the CSDP should focus more on Africa? And apart from those good Italians I mentioned, 1,600, do you feel that uh, you know, the, maybe the EU should reprioritize the UN uh, away maybe from other things in the Middle East or, or wider on, so, further afield. So those are the three things I had on my mind. But I want to go directly to the audience also for, to throw a couple of initial questions into the mix so that the panellists can give a first round of answers. Who would like to uh, start? Okay, Andrew Budd. Microphone, Andrew, is coming your way. Thank you very much. My name is Andrew Budd. I come from NATO, former or colleague of Jamie Still, I guess. He's a former colleague. Um, a lot of what you said has resonated with the, the work that's gone on with NATO in the last uh, 20 years or so, I suppose, on the uh, peacekeeping side that NATO has been involved in. 
And I've been part of the planning for this and witnessed many of the difficulties that have been spoken about um, between on the partnership side. But the question I have is the partnership within the UN and the capacity of the UN to do the kind of planning that you were talking about. Um, we've identified these lessons. Have we learnt them? Have we reformed uh, within DPKO? And is there any closer association with the political side working together? Because in two, unless those two can work together better, I just don't see us getting to the, the kind of planning that is needed for the, for the solutions you're talking about. Andrew, thanks very much. So can we have one, one more, please, uh, for this current round? Uh, gentlemen, there, yeah, please. Simone Ceramicola, European Commission, DEFCO. Uh, you, 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 you said very clear that uh, the core problem is the political process. Eh? And peacekeeping, uh, all the other actions and peacekeeping are instrumental, you said clearly. So I would like to focus on the European Union role. And I would like your reaction and your feedback on three aspects. European Union needs more unity in the foreign policy and in the foreign uh, projection. We need to uh, rule the weapons trade. And we need to reinforce our capacity to promote mediation, to support internal mediation. You made Mr. Oshie reference to Af African Union, but for example now we have an, a crisis that is open in Venezuela eh? and, and, and we can make a difference all together in order to not always intervene or interfere but to help promoting internal conditions for internal mediation, successful mediation. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks to, to, to first uh, uh, members of the audience to ask questions. So, Alice, pick up. Uh, when it comes to the questions, I mean, just pick up whichever elements uh, you want to comment on. Yeah, yeah um, I think I will address the question of African um, countries and how they're now reacting to uh, ex external actors' interventions. I mean, there is no such a thing as a... Uh, a silver lining to a conflict or to a genocide. But if there is one thing that African countries learned in the wake of the Rwandan genocide against the Tutsis, the invasion of Somalia and the wars of Liberia, Sierra Leone and others in the 1990s was that they had to change what the, the ways that they had been dealing with conflicts. The transformation from the old organization of African unity into the African Union in the 2000 was such um, really inspired at the heart of it by the fact that the OAU had been absolutely unable or unwilling to intervene. One of the key changes in this transformation is Article 4H of the Constitutive Act of the African Union, which now allows member states to intervene in other member states in cases of mass atrocities, human rights abuses, without necessarily the consent of the member state. And this was key in this transformation. It really showed or at least it meant to show that they were willing to consider intervention not just by external actors, the AU, the UN, the EU, or other organizations. And it is part of this new, well, it's not so new now, it was in 2002, of the African Union Peace and Security Architecture, which really deals now with conflicts. And as you would agree now, I don't think that the UN or the EU would really be able to do anything on the African conf uh, continent without at the very least, 
the agreement or uh, collaboration with the African Union peace and security architecture in one way or another. All the interventions at the moment are supposed to be dealt with in collaboration and in conjunction with the African Union. Now, the African Union, as we will all know and agree, is also very under-resourced, very, very underdeveloped, and for that reason, it still is quite highly dependent on mainly the EU funding and that sort of uh, external funding. However, since 2017, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda has been leading um, uh, great efforts, I think, to figure out how to fund some of the African Union's own activities. And last year, um, uh, they were able to push one of these reforms, which I think is quite key, and it shows this resistance um, against external interventions, um, the funding of the Peace Fund, the African Union Peace Fund. And he, uh, uh, in the report and the recommendations, um, Paul Kagame's report was pushing that member states do fund some of the um, of the, the required resources for this fund. So there has been, over the last 15 to 18 years, great uh, uh, work done in order for African states and African member states to own their very own interventions and, and um, peacekeeping um, uh, interventions. However, uh, the main problem we are talking here, and I don't think we should not see the big, big elephant, in the room is that European countries and other non-European countries continue to meddle in the affairs and internal affairs of African states. And that is at the heart of, at the core of the issues. We, we will, of course, talk about African countries. We will talk about their participation in peace building and peacekeeping. But the heart of these is that we still have very, very complex post-colonial relationships that are really not so post-colonial. We still have um, issues of, at the moment, interventions that we know are very, very particular. I will not name such countries, but we know that these interventions are led by very specific external actors coming from very specific members of the European Union. Um, and so these questions are very, very complex, and we can think about what the UN can do. We can even think about ECOWAS. We can think about the African Union or the East African community, but at the heart of this, we still have really, really complex relationships and many African countries are struggling to deal with so many actors at the same time. They have the post-colonial relationships, they have the new actors, they have the American interferences and it's, it is quite complex to deal with at the same time. So yes, I think it's good that we are having these conversations. I think it's meaningful but, but we need to talk about the responsibility, the political responsibilities of certain countries in creating and maintaining a status of conflict, which makes it really hard to resolve, even if we had the best strategies in the world. Thank you. Uh, Alice, thanks very much. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, Linda, please, uh, your perspective then on Rwanda today. Um, and anything else you want to pick I up? I want on? to answer your question, Jamie, about whether or not the UN has atoned. Well, um, have we? I mean, the UN is us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The founders of the UN um, intended that the Security Council should operate in public session, that all the decisions taken should be accountable, that each government on the council should be accountable for his or her actions, um, and this, quite frankly, never happens. 
It developed over years that the Security Council, the diplomats and the politicians found it easier to take these decisions in secret and informal sessions. Unless I'd got hold of a contemporaneous account of what was said in the Council in these three months, we would not have known that, one, France sat silent when it knew uh, intimately this this uh, country, and that the UK first called for the peace, peacekeepers to be withdrawn when the council was aware that a genocide of the Tutsi was underway. I believe that the UN is the greatest, humankind's greatest experiment, um, and that it should be accountable. Um, I just want to mentioned, because I don't think we've mentioned it yet, that Rwanda provides, uh, is the third largest contributor to peacekeepers in the world. I find that really uh, remarkable. On lessons learned, um, the people of Rwanda didn't know why the peacekeepers were in their country in the first place. They had absolutely no idea at all. I think that's right, is it, Alice? They just didn't know. And... um, And what was needed, um, many experts have said to me, was not troops with weapons on the streets. It was civilian police that this was a question of law and order. And what sort of signal did it send the people of Rwanda to see peacekeepers with their weapons and that a civilian police force... uh, Unamir did have a civilian police component, and I've got to know quite well some of those police who were looking into the political assassinations. For example, Felician Gatabazi, who was a moderate, killed on February the 22nd, before the genocide, weeks before the genocide started. He was killed by the Hutu power movement. And the civilian police did a proper forensic examination of this assassination. And I think that that's really important. On the political problem, I come back to the founders of the UN and what they intended it to be. And, um, and my job really is um, um, to explain what happened in, in the council um, at that time and whether or not... Um, <coughs> You think, the experts here think, that 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 has changed. I don't think it has. Thank you. Okay, thanks. And and I really appreciate the frankness of all of these uh, comments uh, this morning. Uh, Rory, lots of uh, questions to you, of course. Um, Well, just very briefly to pick up on a point uh, that Linda made in terms of Rwanda's role in peacekeeping, which is so important. They're playing such an important role in places like South Sudan. Also in terms of women in peacekeeping, providing uh, female troops uh, to support, uh, which can really help to build confidence in IDP camps and so on. Sometimes, I'm speaking as a European now rather than a UN official, but sometimes in Europe we tend to think that we lead the women peace and security debate or that we're in the front line, but I think we have a lot to learn also from countries like Rwanda. Um, on on some of these type of issues. Um, So, um, firstly, to Jamie's point on what we need from the EU, I could speak all day on this, but I won't. (laughs) Uh, Very, very briefly, um, CSTP is really uh, a great product. It's really uh, uh, such an important tool, and it does security sector capacity building so well. 
And this is really a natural complementarity with UN peace operations. So while a UN peace operation is stabilizing the ground, then an EU CSDP operation can help to build the security sector architecture and, and, and to support the government to do that in a given country. So yes, we would like to see more CSDP, and yes, we would like to see more ambition for CSDP. Um, Secondly, uh, EU member states. EU member states play an important role in peacekeeping. Uh, troops is one thing, and we have quite a lot of troops from European countries right now, mainly in Mali. But it's not just about troops. It's not about numbers so much. It's about providing us with the niche uh, troops that we need, staff officers, um, troops with the uh, linguistic skills that we need, uh, troops with the technical skills that we need, um, and also providing us the capabilities that we need. And one way that European countries can do that is to start thinking about rotation systems. So as one European country uh, departs from a peace operation, then another European country plugs in. So a plug-and-play amongst European countries in support of UN peace operations and overall, and in more generally in support of multilateralism. And then the third point in terms of EU needs is niche capabilities. Uh, we have a huge need for uh, transport, aircraft, uh, for helicopters. Um, you know, there's a whole host of niche capabilities uh, that, uh, that we, we need, uh, counter IED equipment and so on. So what we would like European countries to do is, uh, when doing defense procurement planning, to also take the UN needs into consideration and not just uh, the domestic needs. So to think a bit more broadly about defense planning. Uh, and also for the European Union, as you design PESCO and as you define the, design the European Defence Fund, think also how to satisfy uh, your obligations to the United Nations in addition to the obligations um, domestically. Uh, coming to Andrew's point, a uh, very important point, uh, I mean, we have now just undergone a major UN reform to try and address just what you're saying. So, uh, for example, peace building has now been integrated into the political. So now we have the UN Department of Political and Peace Building Affairs. Um, in addition to that, we have now uh, merged in the geographical level. At the ge geographical level, we have merged our peace operations teams with our political teams. Uh, this is all new reforms inter introduced by Secretary General Guterres. So that's now been integrated. So they're no longer working in, uh, in, different, in different silos. So that's been very important. Thirdly, we have established um, an initiative called the Peacekeeping Capability Readiness System so that we are linking our needs on the ground with the capabilities that member states are putting at our disposal and trying to better match uh, that process. And, third, and fourthly, and finally, we're doing a lot more on pre-deployment training. Uh, pre-deployment training is the responsibility of member states, but we're doing a lot more to support member states to ensure that pre-deployment training uh, is up to standard. Um, and then uh, finally, on uh, Jeremy, I think's point, uh, take your point on the need for EU un unity. EU unity is good for the United Nations, so it, it really, it really helps us. Um, so uh, a, str a strong EU in that sense is is very helpful. Um, on weapons trade and so on, I mean, we have a UN sanctions committee uh, and we we have a UN sanctions regime. And of course, we, we want to see the UN sanctions regime uh, respected uh, globally. 
Uh, and then to your final point on you know, mediation and, and so on, we have visitors in New York just today, for example, uh, working with the EU on conflict prevention and mediation. Uh, Secretary General Guterres's number one objective, by bar none, is prevention. Um, but it's a very easy word to say, uh, and, but, it, and it, but it takes a, it's, it's difficult to operationalize uh, because it's difficult to get the political will to operationalize it. So we need to do much more on the prevention agenda, which means acting earlier, which means having better political analysis um, and more agile and flexible instruments in our toolbox. That's certainly something we're working on. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, lots of information coming out. Uh, I've got time for three more, so gentlemen there and the two ladies at the back. Then we'll have to uh, close it. But, sir, uh, microphone, Elena is bringing you the microphone. Uh, no, gentlemen in the front here. Elena, straight on. Yep, there you go. Thank you. <coughs> got it. Thank you. My name is Jean Mouniapeta. Uh, I'm a aid consultant in Bruxelles. Uh, um, my question is about the prevention. Because uh, the UN... NATO and CSDP, uh, what they're doing now, they, they intervene after the, the conflict. But the most important is prevention. Well, in French, we said, the same cause produces the same effect. The same problem can have the same consequence. What happened in Rwanda, the genocide against Tutsi, it came because we had main issues. What those issues? Frustration, refugees, dictator from 13 years, 30 years. And now, in most of the country in, in Africa, we have the same problem. In Rwanda, we have Kagame, who is in place since more than 24 years. In uh, Cameroon, more than 30 years. And most of the country have the same problem. We have a lot of refugees. We have a lot of inequality in, in poor in, in the country. And then, for those frustrations, we can have the same consequences now. What can do UN, CSDP, and NATO? What can do uh, to, for the prevention to prevent those conflicts before? Because to come after is important, of course, but is not enough. Okay, that's a big question. Uh, thanks very much. And then, uh, as I said, there were two ladies at the back. Uh, so, first lady there, please, and then over the other side. And then we will uh, have the final round. Uh, so, please. Thank you very much. I'm Joanna Appap from the European Parliament. Uh, thank you very much to all speakers. Thank you, Jamie, for organizing this. Also, I have a question about Libya in this case and UN SMIL in uh, Libya. What lessons did we learn, therefore, for history which are, we are applying now in Libya? Basically, this is my main question. Libya, also, there are echoes of criticisms of interference by uh, foreign countries who do not understand enough the situation there on the ground, the militias, the interactions between tribes and all this, um, the political process is the key. Political stability is what we need, above all, I think. I mean, the rest follows, but this is what we need first and foremost. Where are we? What are, the, what are you doing about this? What lessons are you applying? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that begs, of course, the question of should the UN be involved in even more uh, operations in Africa and the degree of preparations for, for, to be ready uh, for these uh, new 
new uh, uh, operations. Thanks, thanks for that question. And then, uh, please, lady in the corner there. Thank you very Final much, question. Pascaline Gabori, pilot for Dev. Thank you very much for your very interesting presentations. I have a question, first of all, for the uh, United Nations. Uh, you say, well, uh, of course, it is internationally recognized, but we see that, for instance, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the UN staff is often a target. So what are you doing also for the security? Are we reaching a limit to the peace intervention of the UN as a, an organization? And as you mentioned, in a transforming world, how do you see the future? My second question is, do we have enough solutions and instruments for conflict prevention? Because, of course, I hear that there are already instruments in place, but we see case by case that there are many failures. Syria, Venezuela, even Nicaragua. I mean, what is done, really, the, the European diplomacy is very shy. So what are the instruments in place? Thank okay, you. thank you. So we've got some big questions to end on. I think just uh, we'll, we'll, for the sake of a bit of interest and to spice it up, we'll go in reverse order this time. So Rory, you first, then Linda, and we'll give the final uh, comment to uh, Alice. Okay. Thank you, Jamie. So on the prevention, I'll, there was two questions on prevention, which I will take together and then come back to the Libya and DRC point. On prevention, um, the biggest challenge we have on prevention, uh, and it relates to the instrument that we need also, uh, is political will, political interest. So how do we get prevention issues on our agenda, uh, be it um, a Security Council agenda, the Foreign Affairs Council agenda, the NAC agenda? How do we get prevention issues on our agenda? Um, so I think there's a lot of think tanks and NGOs also in the room this morning. Um, you also have a role to play. The European Parliament clearly has a role to play uh, in also ensuring that AFET uh, ensures that prevention cases uh, are, are on the agenda. So getting prevention issues on the agenda is perhaps the biggest challenge and also the biggest opportunity. Uh, in terms of... Um, other practical issues that can be done. I think what we need to do also in, is make sure that we attune our programming in country to, to prevention opportunities. So that whether it's road building, whether it's irrigation, uh, whatever it is that we're doing to make sure that we're looking for prevention opportunities uh, uh, when we're doing that. And um, in the UN, we have something called police, uh, sorry, we have something called peace and development advisors. Uh, and these are uh, advisors that work in countries and their sole task is to actually look for opportunities for prevention and to advise the UN family and the broader international community on how to... Um, how to take that forward, and these, these are also supported by the European Union financially. So I think that's also a very practical tool, these peace and development advisors. Um, on uh, on UNSMIL, I mean, it, I think uh, it, it's, it's again coming back to the need to support uh, uh, the local political process uh, to support... Uh, national reconciliation and this is where it can be a little bit frustrating for the international community sometimes because um, we as uh, the international community we cannot make peace um, so what we can do is we can support processes and SRSG Salame is supporting through a roadmap, uh, supporting the, the constitutional process, supporting the reconciliation process with an eventual horizon also on elections. Um, so this is what's taking place. But what we need to do is to look for opportunities of how we support 
the process, and it does take uh, patience and engagement. And as I mentioned at the outset, it also takes time. Um, and I think this is, uh, is important. What we also need to ensure is that, as the international community, that we're not sending mixed me messages or mixed signals uh, or uh, providing or creating uh, an overbearing transaction costs. So we should, uh, we should keep our transaction costs to, to a minimum uh, in the country as well so that we don't overburden uh, local uh, interlocutors. Um, and then finally on the DRC, I think one thing we always stress in the United Nations is that it's the government's responsibility to provide security for the country. It's that, that's what sovereignty means. Uh, it's your, you have to be able to provide security for your citizens. Uh, and also, when a UN operation is in the country, uh, you should also be uh, supporting and providing uh, security for that operation. Um, so I think that's an important point to make at the outset, uh, the need for, for governments to provide. Don't talk about sovereignty. Uh, talk about, really, can you provide uh, security for all of your citizens? Because that's the expression of sovereignty, or uh, one of the expressions of sovereignty. What we are doing in the UN and in the DRC and elsewhere is trying to protect civilians. So that's our, our main objective, our POC, the POC agenda, protection of civilians. But in order to protect civilians, we need the capabilities and the training and the troops that are necessary to protect civilians. There's a, I don't want to get overly technical, but there's a dialectic here between force protection and protection of civilians. If, if, if uh, troops cannot protect themselves, force protection, then they will not be in a position to leave their barracks to protect civilians in a town or a village. So sometimes uh, when I talk to people in Brussels, everybody is very happy to talk about protection of civilians, but nobody wants to talk about protection of the forces, protection of the troops. But if we want the troops to take that proactive action, uh, we need also to ensure that they're protected, and we're going to need also the capabilities uh, that's needed so that they can project uh, the type of support that's needed to protect civilians. So I like to have that conversation about force protection and protection of civilians as, 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 a, as, the same con as part of the same conversation. Thank you. Uh, Roy, thanks very much. So, Linda, please, uh, some final thoughts. Um, refugees. Um, I'd like to just pick up on that quickly because this was um, in Rwanda. Uh, there were up to one million Tutsi refugees out of the country and the Arusha Accords was, were um, painstakingly negotiated um, and yet unrealistic. The Arusha Accords provided for a weapons-secure area in the whole country. You know, you could buy a grenade for a dollar in the market, about Liberia, but... Um, so um, the Arusha Accords provided for um, a military um, weapons-free zone in the entire country, and the Security Council decided that this was far too big a task. So they declared that the Arusha Accords, in a, in a sense, were no longer viable and decided there would only be a weapons-secure area in Kigali. Um, this did not help prevention. Um, I'll be very quick. Um, I just wanted to say that um, the UN is second only to the EU, the worst reported organisation in history. 
You know, it's so convenient for the politicians to hide behind. Rwanda was not a UN failure. It, it was our failure. And, um, and I'll get back to, <laughs> to my, my initial point, is that it's really important that all of every peacekeeping mission is properly reported. And I don't believe that they are. I think that we're so badly informed. It is humankind's greatest experiment, and it needs more commitment, and we should be fighting for that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things, and I want to address the question on Libya. Um, Libya was an interesting case because it did actually divide the African Union and the United Nations and the Security Council and obviously NATO, uh, mainly because the Africans in Addis uh, had the feeling that they were not listened to as to what they were trying to do when the Europeans and UN was trying to say that they're trying to protect Gaddafi. Now, the, the, the main problem with the Libyan uh, intervention was that it was a hit and run intervention. It was it was a let's go in, let's bomb, and then who knows what's going to happen. And it has remained that at the moment there is no clear idea as to what the exact state is, who is the state of Libya, who runs the country, and from where. And it has complicated matters of um, um, migration mainly into European space, but also into African internal displacements. And it has outspilled out into other conflicts, Mali, Chad, and all Niger, and all the other countries. And so it was a very, very terribly thought intervention. I think that from the European perspective, probably, and maybe even the UN, it was uh, successful in terms of there was no no um, ground, no, no men on the ground. There were no uh, casualties in that sense, uh, as in non Libyan casualties, but it, it complicated a whole lot um, African politics ever since. And the question of the unity of African states and how they represent themselves at the UN and the group of uh, African states who are uh, uh, non-permanent members of the Security Council. Um, but the main issue is that it did not have any post-intervention plan. Um, what was supposed to happen once Gaddafi was gone, once his son was gone, once his family was out, what was supposed to happen to the people. And the main issue right now is really who is protecting the people, who are the people. We don't even see them in the news anymore. We don't know what's going on with these people. We don't know who is looking after them. All we know is that the country is split, and that means even a great deal of ordeal for these people. Um, uh, on the question of the, the uh, UN staff in um, different places, but mainly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, look, I, I, I hate to always say this, but in the UN, um, in, the, in, the, in a book that Peter Uvin wrote many, many years ago, um, he wrote about not doing any harm. And this question of not doing any harm, do no harm in interventions and peacekeeping and peace building is very, very important. Um, we do know, for example, that in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but also certain other countries, UN staff, UN peacekeepers under the UN blue flag were involved in crimes. And I mean horrifying crimes. These 
are not able to be prosecuted by members by, by the, the host state because the host state is a fragile state. It, it is not able to do any protection of civilians or project sovereignty or do anything for that matter. And these are not followed up. There is a great deal of distrust in the kinds of peacekeepers that we now have, which is probably why there is not that many peacekeepers coming from Western, Western countries. And all of these have caused really complicated relationships. But at the, at the heart of this is we need to remember that the people who are suffering most are the people who are in these countries. While I do agree, and I think it's horrible that the crimes are committed against UN staff should be addressed, there is no question about that, but the discussion should always start from the local people. It is a, a protracted war, a very, very complex war. It's been going on for a very long time. And so, so it is important to think about the protection of local peacekeepers in the great context of the protection of the people who are in these places. Who is providing security? What are the issues of this provision of security beyond, of course, the capacities and the capabilities of the, of the state that is the host to this? And my final um, comment, and I want to go back to, to Rwanda, because in the last 25 years, next month it will be 25 years after the genocide against the Tutsi. It's a quarter century after we came from possibly one of the most horrifying times in the, world, in, in the history of the world. The key to coming out of these conflicts is the ownership and the willingness of the local people to really figure out how to get out of it. Obviously with the help of the international community, obviously with the help of the resources that come outside. And this is important because in these talks that we keep having, we need to figure out how to understand and listen to mainly African, but I think it's happening elsewhere, political dynamics. Figure out who is trying to lift their people out of poverty, who is trying to lift their people out of conflict and work with them in non a meddling way. Not just by, because we want to meddle in there, but really because we want to figure out what it is that's happening. I think that's the lesson. The main lesson is that when the people take on the, the task of rebuilding, we need to figure out how to help them without having to meddle. Right now, even the, the European policy, even the UN, it still is this political game of half wanting to intervene and half wanting to meddle and basically do some social engineering, make sure that people follow some, um, some strategies that is somewhat set but not with them in mind. So African countries, I, I think from my research and my very own experiences, are extremely resistant to this at this moment in time. And it is important for European countries, for the UN, for the Americans to listen to this resistance, not just to say, oh, they're just trying to, I don't know, steal money or keep things for their own families, to go beyond that. I think it's important to figure out how to understand this resistance and how to work with, or perhaps not entirely with, but figure out how to work with it in the, in the, for the greater good of and the protection and the security of the local people. But it is important to figure out how to listen to the Africans now. Well, uh, 
Alice, thank you. I think uh, that's obviously a powerful uh, and from the heart message to uh, to, to end on. Uh, but uh, thanks not just to you, but uh, also uh, to Linda and Rory. Uh, we went a bit over time, but very few of you left, which I think shows that we all recognise in a room that this is a, a very, very important topic. We could have spent several days on it. A lot of big, big, big issues came out. But I think we did establish that there are some lessons from history uh, and that even within a one-hour uh, passionate, intense debate, you can throw a lot of light on a topic. My three takeaways very quickly are that there are successful examples of UN peacekeeping, so there are good practices, good examples that we can learn from. I won't reiterate all of them, but many of them came out. Uh, but certainly the idea of knowledge of the local situation, a long-term commitment, political process, capacity building, justice, um, all of those are important. So there are things that you can sort of take from one successful operation to make the next one more successful. Uh, we are not sort of... Uh, condemned to failure, far from it. Uh, secondly, secondly we, we, we spoke a, a lot uh, about prevention uh, and uh, partnerships. Uh, that's very, very key. Uh, it's difficult to do prevention, but if you get it right, it's vastly better than intervention. Uh, and, uh, and with partnerships, I think we got some good ideas about better engagement with the African Union, which is now, of course, a réalité incontournable, as we say here, uh, but also lots of things that the EU can do in addition to what it's doing already. And then finally, I think the powerful thing about transparency, transparency of, in all of our processes, particularly the UN, is painful, uh, difficult, uh, but it's the only way to have accountability and it's the only way to move forward. And therefore, all of us have to uh, help that process by uh, you know, paying attention to these issues that may not always be top of the international agenda when we're you know, obviously so much focused on things closer to home or the defeat of ISIS. Or, or, uh, but what is uh, important is not always urgent. And what is urgent in the long run may be less important than the things we were discussing today. So keep that sort of uh, accountability, long-term perspective. By the way, just to finish, uh, from my side, uh, uh, in Friends of Europe, we have this Debating Security Plus uh, online platform. Many of you are on it already. Uh, please, others uh, who are interested, this is a way to continue these sort of discussions and allow you to record your views and hear from a lot of other experts. So uh, we'll try to feature these particular issues more in uh, de uh, Debating Security Plus as we go forward. Again, a great, great turnout today, great topic, three great speakers. I learned a lot. Uh, I'm sure you did as well. So again, uh, a round of applause and then off to work. <laughs> <laughs>